All right, well, this is Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dan Macon in Auburn, California, and uh, absolutely thrilled this morning on our time, this evening in your time, to be joined by James Rebanks. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for, for joining our podcast today. It, it's, an, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So it's 5.30 there, and, and uh, your day's wrapping up. What what kinds of things are you doing this time of year on the farm? What What's a typical day so, look like? So we've just got past the longest, uh, sort of longest, the best bit of our summer. Um, we've just, we sheared about 10 days ago, so we got the wool off the sheep. Uh, we made the, the hay, um, all the way to hay in the last 10 days. And then we just, um, because we brought the sheep down from the mountain to shear them, we just took those back up a few days ago. Okay. And then the kids are on holiday, so I've just actually had two or three quieter days. But we haven't gone anywhere. We just we just did some slightly more fun stuff with the kids. So I've been uh, doing my daily jobs and going around my sheep, making sure everything's okay, and then trying to take an hour or two out every afternoon just to do something. I've got a couple of young boys particularly, and um, uh, they're not young for very long, so I've been trying to spend an hour or two in the afternoons taking them for a walk or maybe go swimming in the lake or something like that. And did I see on Twitter that you may have done a little camping trip with your youngest? Yeah, um, yeah. there wasn't a lot of sleeping took place. Uh, <laughs> I went ca- camping with the nine-year-old and the three-year-old just down the fields where we live. And um, yeah, uh, I had a really interesting night because it's a long time since I stayed up all night listening to the wildlife in this valley. Yeah. But uh, the three-year-old with me kept me up all night. So it was fun to hear the owls and the foxes and things like that. I wouldn't want to do it every night, though. <laughs> we we did that with our girls when they were about that age um, a couple of years. And it's it's absolutely amazing to see the world through their eyes again. Isn't it? That's 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 right. We um, yeah, uh, it's it, it's fun. And it I think it keeps you um, keeps you young and it keeps you like you say, it keeps you seeing things in a fresh way like kids do. And I'm lucky I've got four kids and I try never to take that for granted. Yeah, I'm a. I'm a slightly obsessive shepherd who looks after his sheep and loves his writing and things. So I'm probably not always as in my kid's life as maybe they'd want me to be, but I'm trying really hard to be. There's more to life than work, right? Although I think, I think there's some similarities in in that, in in my experience, Um, shepherding takes so much attention to do it well. And I think it's hard to sometimes to balance that with what your family wants. um, Yeah. I, th- I think so. One of the one of the things we've really been working on in the last few years on the farm, and it's been partly caused by the success of my writing, is to just try and make the farm certainly at some times of the year as simple as we can. Like, why are we making this too complicated? Why would we have multiple flocks when we might just have one flock? <laughs> uh, I, I think we can sometimes make life way more complicated than we need to as farmers. And we've been trying to really dial that back and, and, and just go back to first principles and think, what do we actually really need to do in this month? Um, how do we look after things properly, but have time to, to, to do the things we need to do? I think, I think for a couple of generations, at least in my family, we've been a little bit obsessed with <laughs> doing things because we always did them. And that's lovely. That, that, that roots you in a lovely tradition of work and it gives you a great sense of meaning. Um, but the world's changing, and I think we have to be sensible sensible about the way we go about things. So tell me a little more about your farm. Um, you know, most of our listeners are, are producers here in North America. What kind of breeds do you have? What kind of grazing land? Kind of just walk so, us through so that. We, so we're, 
what what in the UK they would call a fell farm. A fell is basically a mountain or a moorland. Um, and we have, it's quite a strange beast. It's, it's a sort of type of English farm that comes out of the ancient past. So we have uh, commoners grazing racks to take sheep to a mountain alongside a bunch of other flocks. So uh, right now, most of my sheep are up on the mountain and they're largely unsupervised because we don't have large carnivores in the UK because um, we killed them a long time ago and they can't <laughs> get back across the English Channel. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and then we have a smaller amount of land uh, in the valley bottom. It's still 1,100 feet above sea level. So okay. It's marginal land. It's not great land. But that's where we would, uh, we would rest that land in the summer to make the hay and maybe have the ewes that have uh, twin lambs on them would, would stay lower down the hill uh, and the cattle would stay slightly lower down the hill in the high mountain. And yeah, it's um, in some ways we're a 21st century family. So I'm obviously talking to you on my, <laughs> on my laptop on the internet. But some of the farming we do is, is literally ancient. We think the flock of sheep that I farm on the mountain have been going to and from that uh, mountain without any break, without any interruption on exactly the same pattern for at least a thousand years, maybe for four and a half thousand years since the ancient British sheep. And I can't find a historian who tells me, who can tell me any reason why that hasn't been there for four and a half thousand years. We think it has. So there's, there's something quite remarkable about that. The, to be part of a shepherding tradition that's older than the pyramids or as old as the pyramids. It's, yeah. It's mind blowing. You think, wow, really? Nothing, nothing ever stopped that. But no, it didn't. It, it went through world wars. It went through the industrial revolution. It's, it somehow just got through and got by. And and it wasn't a place to grow rich. This was a place where most people were sort of semi subsistence farmers, and then they they had other hustles. They always had other hustles. I'm not the first person to think of a side <laughs> hustle. Uh, so. So their hustles were working on the roads or the railways or in the mines or shearing sheep for other people or working on the bigger farms. There was always a thing you would do. And quite often the women were left through the summer on the farm uh, to do the farm work. So there's a long, long tradition here of having these really tough, really smart uh, farm women, shepherd, shepherdesses, who... Um, and quite often the men, and it still goes on to this day. So on the farms in this valley that I'm looking around at as I speak to you, uh, there's still some amazing shepherdesses here. And sometimes the husband will go and drive trucks or something or do something else to, to earn money to make it work. And yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much how it worked. There's probably a brief period that my grandfather experienced where you could get away with just being a farmer. So my earliest memories are, are of thinking, oh, we can just be farmers. That's what we do. We don't have to hustle anything else. And then in the 1980s and 90s, we've gone back as, as sort of commodity prices have made that tougher. We're slowly morphing back into people that are sort of part-time farmers or small farmers. And then you've got to have a side hustle. And that's, that's what everybody I know does here. So some, on my farm, we have 300 ewes. And all their followers, so there's about 650, 700 sheep at the moment. Yeah, uh, I've got friends that have two or 3,000 sheep, but that isn't enough to make a full living either, so they still do yeah. work off the farm. And these farms are so fixed and so traditional and so clung on to by these families because they're the absolute essence of who these people are that it makes it really difficult to grow. So my neighbours have been there forever as well. We've been here, we've been in this area for way over 600 years. Um, if I want to grow my farm, I have to go to get more land. I have to go outside of this valley. I have to go somewhere else into a different place to try and do that. Um, and that brings its own challenges, obviously. Absolutely. 
That, you know, it's interesting. I think it's largely the same here in terms of, of most people having some sort of a side hustle, um, even if they're operating at, at a much larger scale than we operate. I, I suppose that's I, probably... I, I have to say, I'm really, um, I'm really influenced by a number of people on YouTube, actually. There's a guy called Richard Perkins in Sweden who's all about making small farms pay mm -hmm. called Ridgedale Permaculture. Um, and I love the way that guy thinks. Like, uh, like maybe we've all been going about it wrong. Maybe there's a different way to stack our businesses up where you could make a living on a, a full living on a small farm. And maybe it means we have to grow some slightly different things or we have to add more value to our produce or build communities of people that believe in what we do and are prepared to pay a little bit more for it. Um, and I'm also heavily under the influence of a, an American called Greg Judy, who I'm sure some of you will have heard of. Absolutely. Um, I love what I love what he's doing. So I think I think we got a little bit addicted in our farming system in the twentieth mid twentieth century to sort of copying an, an American version of farming progress, really, which is to have that big tractor to yep. put, put the artificial fertilizer on. And of course, that works for a while, but then you realize suddenly you're making no money. Everybody else is making money out of you. There's a salesman coming into the yard with a smile on his face because he's <laughs> he's getting a wage and you're not. So. Yeah. So we're really trying to we're really trying to iron that out. I want as little expenditure on my farm, as little input costs, as little bought stuff as possible coming into my system. And we're trying to get back to really good grazing management, really good soil management, with as few inputs as possible, with the right breeds of traditional, the sort of heritage breeds of this place, so we can cut out all of that input costs and and try and make a modest living or part of a living. And instead of getting trapped in, trapped in somebody else's sort of corporate game, I don't want to play that anymore. That, you know, that is, is largely the same conversation you could have in my part of California right now. I think there's a lot of people looking, looking to that. And I want to get into that with your book here in just a second. Um, one of the, the things I'm, I'm always curious about with other sheep herding cultures in California and, and really in the U.S., you know, there's this whole myth about the cowboy, and they're at a much higher social strata than the lowly sheep herder in this country. Is there a similar strata there? Is there a similar? How are sheep herd, shepherds regarded in in the U.K.? Okay, so so no, and and I only just learned about this when my first book, The Shepherd's Life, came out in America in I think 2016. Um, I, I realized this was happening, so. Uh, uh, we don't. We have a different. We stack these things in a different way, right? So, um, some of the UK landscapes are, so, are such ancient, such such proud pastoral systems that shepherd is on the top of the pile. There's literally nothing more respected. There's nothing more part of our culture. There's nothing more admired. Uh, the idea that there's a sort of cowboy above you in this hierarchy that that's not a thing in our world. Um, and I realized when I got to America with my first book that I was trying to persuade people that sheep matter. And, and, <laughs> and people were looking at me funny. <laughs> and, and, and actually, I remember that because I, I grew up loving, uh, uh, loving American sort of Western movies. And, it, and, and it's in those movies, isn't it? The sheep guy turns up and he wants to put wire fences up and yep. the cowboys hate them because they call them land rats and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about there. Um, but no. Uh, in, in the shepherding parts of Britain, there's literally nothing higher, there's nothing more culturally respected than to be uh, a, uh, a shepherd of a great flock of sheep. And it's, it's literally, you stick your chest out and 
there's cultural events here, the shepherds meets and the shows, and the wall of your house, if you go into the old farmhouses, there's these pictures from the 1960s or the 1930s or the 1890s of these great sheep. And people's whole sense of pride and identity is tied to being part of these really ancient traditions. So, uh, so yeah, quite different. But I mean, I'm only talking about sheep. The truth is these farms here were a mix of, mix of livestock traditionally. So um, they were little farms. And if you go back maybe 150 years, they would have had maybe three cows, mm -hmm. 50 ewes, maybe a couple of pigs. They were, they were really small. And over time, they've been amalgamated. By the 1960s, there's probably in the little valley where I live, there would have been 20 farms. And they'd grown to a dozen cows and 100 sheep. Uh, and now there's, there's like three full-time farmers in this little valley now. And we would have anywhere between 300 and 1,000 sheep. So it's, it, it's ramped up, but it's, I mean, the nice part of it is that the traditions have kept going. Um, uh, yeah, and they're, they're, still, they're still cared about. So it isn't just sheep, it's cattle as well. But um, I guess one of the things I've tried to do with my two books is to, is to write about this stuff from the inside. And uh, yeah. my original ambition was to remind English people how special this stuff is. Like, like you've all... You either don't know or, you, or you've forgotten how special it is that you might have a pastoral system all around you, which goes back thousands of years, which has these amazing traditions, which has these sheep that know where to stay on the mountain. This, I, think, I think sometimes we forget that anything can be special with people like us. Like it's, it's really easy to see why, I don't know, somebody who's an Aborigine, uh, Aboriginal person in Australia or maybe a Maasai person in Tanzania it's really easy to see why they might be different because they wear a different uniform. They look different than everybody else. Um, it's easy to forget that there's large areas of Europe and, and other places where there's equally, equally as special things. And um, yeah, I've been lucky enough to see some of those other things. And then I came back home and, and I could see it more clearly. I was looking at home thinking, wow, my, my granddad's just like another version of that Maasai cow guy. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think we need to look at it with fresh eyes and say, hang on a minute, this is really special. This is really special, and I'm very lucky to be part of it. And, and if we're going to let this stuff disappear, then, then okay, if, that's, if we've thought that through cl clearly, that's okay, that's a choice. But I don't think we should, and I think when we think it through clearly, we realize that this stuff actually matters. This is how people lived here for a very long time, and this is still going to matter in the future where we need really good local sustainable food systems. It may matter. I would argue it matters even more in the future than it does today with 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 the pandemic and and with all of the other things that we're dealing with globally. It, having that local food source is just critical. And I, and I think you're right. And I think there was maybe in the 1980s and 90s we got a sort of culture war type situation here where the farmers were defending everything they did as if it had never changed. Right. And the environmentalists are saying it's all absolutely terrible. And I think, I think both positions are problematic. <laughs> so it, it wasn't all completely terrible. There's still quite a lot of good left in our system. Um, and it wasn't all on the farming side exactly what it had been 100 years earlier. We, I think we need, as farmers, need to be big enough to say, actually, we changed quite a lot. We, we started using machinery we'd never used before that. We used chemicals we never used before that. We're grazing more intensely across more of the landscape than we used to. We're, we're suppressing vegetation and starting to damage ecosystems. Um, so I think on both sides, there has to be a more of a narrative, a, a, more of a dialogue 
And, and that's really what I tried to do with my second book, uh, Pastoral Song. And I, I, one more question, then I, I want to get to that. But you talked a little bit about the breed of sheep that you run. And, and um, I'm curious as to whether that is typical in the UK to have a breed of sheep that fits a particular re region and, and kind of ecology of a particular region, or is it, are you, are you still kind of an anachronism in that regard? Okay. That's, that's a good question. So, so if you go back 150 years and you know what you're looking for, you can drop somebody anywhere in Britain and they look in the field at the breed of cow or the breed of sheep, and they can tell you where they're at. It's that they look at the cow and they go, it's a Hereford cow. I mean, I'm in the Herefordshire part of England. It's a Suffolk sheep. I'm in the Suffolk part of England. So we have this really sort of crazy ancient farming landscape where literally they're specialized in every place into a special breed. And in the 19th century, of course, those breeds go all around the world. So you end up with Aberdeen Anguses and Redlands right. and all the rest of it. Um, so, so what we have now is a bit of the old and a bit of the new. So if you go into the most modern intensive farms, uh, particularly in the lowlands, they're, they probably don't have the heritage breed of their area anymore. They probably have a, an improved, modern, often continental breed. Um, why continental? Because they're from a kind of climate. And if you bring them to England and then you feed them lots of corn, you can make them work. Um, but if you go to the, to the edges or the margins of England in any particular area, you, you find that those uh, heritage breeds or traditional breeds are the only thing that can hack it in that environment. So, so the reason I'm just looking out, well, as I told you, I'm looking out at the mountains, the fells behind my farm, and the, literally the only sheep in the world that I know about that can live on those mountains year-round is the breed that we keep, the Herdwick, which have been there for a long time. And it's not because they're the coldest mountains in the world. They're actually um, damp, wet uh, mountains for six, seven months of the year. And it's the damp, coolish, a sort of zero degrees temperature. That, that seems to kill most breeds of sheep pretty, pretty effectively. Yeah. And these sheep, these sheep, through natural selection and selected breeding, uh, can basically stand being cold and wet for about six months of the year without any respite. And trust me, I've, I've tried other breeds. It doesn't work. So, um, yeah, so sort of three or four miles down the valley where there's kind of land or maybe there's some buildings you can put them in, you can keep other breeds. But three miles that way, when you get into the mountains, nothing else works. We ha we have to do what we always had to do. How much of the year are the sheep on the mountain on the fell? So traditionally they were on the mountain the whole time. Now okay. it's more com now it's more complicated because the uh, government ecologists are trying to limit the impact on common land uh, for for ecological reasons. And many of them are, are now coming off in November and don't go back till April in the oh, spring. Okay. okay. So that 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 applies to my flock of sheep. I happen to think that isn't particularly well thought through. I think there's better ways with fencing and other things to create a patchwork landscape up there. Um, but that's what we're living with. Um, but when my, when my sheep come off the mountain, they're literally just coming onto some slightly less severe land just <laughs> beneath it. So they're still pretty tough. And do they, do they lamb down lower? Are you lambing in that lower? Yeah, country? so we, would, we lamb them lower. So the lowest ground I've got is 1,000 feet above sea level. And okay. uh, we, we would have snow... Not all of the time, but we can have snow well into April. So we don't. We try not to lamb until the middle of April. And you've literally this. This is a valley and a landscape that doesn't grow much grass between 
uh, start of October and the start of, well, the end of April. So the whole thing's time for the lamb, and always was, for the lamb to hit the ground about mid-April, mm-hmm. not get caught by the snow. Um, about three weeks later, go back onto the mountain with its mother, uh, cost you nothing because it's grazing this common land up on the hills, right. uh, and come back down uh, with, she's supposed to come back down with a big, strong lamb, preferably at least one, maybe two, <laughs> so, that, so that you keep your replacement females uh, but you go down to your core flock to get through the next tough winter and you sell the surplus. And it, Britain had this crazy hierarchical sheep system where all of the crop growing arable land in the south of England, in the lowland, all relied upon uh, a sheep nursery, nursery, which was the uplands, the uplands of Wales, the yeah. uplands of Scotland and the uplands of England. And those farmers would, instead of breeding their own replacements on the best land, they would come and buy our females from the mountains. Uh, to put into their arable systems to repair their soil and to do the crop rotation with the grazing. So we, we have this thing called the harvest of the hills, the harvest of the fells. Yeah. And it still takes place. It's way smaller than it used to be. It's smaller than it probably needs to be to repair the arable soils. Yeah. But we still have that. So we would, with half of our flock on the mountain, we would breed a purebred mountain sheep to breed our own replacements. And then the other half of the flock we would breed crossbred daughters of those mountain sheep to sell to the guys in the lowland to take into their system. Okay. Okay. And, is, and, and, that- and we think, and we think that system, we think that system is many, many centuries, if not thousands of years old as well. It's remarkable. That's amazing. That's that, that type of thing. Maybe we haven't been doing it long enough in this country to, to, to have developed that type of system, but, that's remarkable. That, it's, I, I suppose it's, I, I'm always fascinated by American agriculture, but if there was a future in which you didn't have fossil fuel, artificial fertilizers, or weed killers for places like Indiana and Iowa, it would be like those places suddenly created a vast market in the poorer bits of America for some kind of crossbred sheep to come into their yeah. system. And, and it's, it's not impossible to imagine that could happen in, in that future, but at the moment, it doesn't look like it, right? Because it, it never was that. Exactly, exactly. But it isn't impossible to imagine that. Um, it, it gets more possible every day, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your first book and then, and then jump into Pastoral Song. But I, I think I probably read A Shepherd's Life in about two sittings. Um, <laughs> It was, it's an amazing book and, and it's interesting to hear you talk about coming to this country to, to talk about it a little bit. What was it like to share that book with your family and with your community? So that, that's, that's a really good question. I, my, my dad was dying of cancer when I was finishing writing that book. Um, I actually changed the way I wrote the book as a result of that. I was, I realized I'm, my dad's, there's a chance my dad's going to read this book in the last few weeks before he dies. And that came to be more important to me than anything else about the book, really. I, it, it became more like a letter to my dad. So my dad wasn't a particularly bookish or literary person. So I really, I didn't want anything in there that made him feel alienated or like I was a smart ass or anything. I just wanted to tell our, tell our story as honestly and as simply as I could. And I didn't want to sugarcoat it because he wasn't always the greatest of dads in every possible way. He was a sort of rough farm dad. Um, but I've come, I've come to love and respect him very much. He was just a hardworking guy that, you know, did his work, helped his neighbors, paid his taxes, 
did his best for his community and loved what he did, loved the traditions that were part of. So the book became a letter to my dad, really. And he did. I was super nervous about this. So imagine you're the last thing you might ever do with your dad is upset him because he doesn't like the way you wrote about him. Uh, and anyway, about a couple of months before he died, I, I gave him a proof of the book. And I said, look, I've, I've written this. And he said, what took you so long? I thought you'd have written a book a long time ago. And, uh, and I was like, you old goat. Um, <laughs> and and I, I left it with him. And I've never been as nervous about anything in my life because I thought if I've got this wrong or I, I hurt him or anything, that's going to be hard to come back to in the situation. And I went to see him and I, I dedicated the book to him. I said I loved and respected him at the start of the book. And when I went back to see him, he was... Uh, I said, what did you think? And he said, the dedication's a bit soppy, which is uh, what you'd expect from a northern father. <laughs> and then I went in the kitchen to talk to my mom and I said, what did he, like, what did he think? And she said he cried all the way through it. Um, and I said, what, cried good or cried bad? She said, I think he cried good. Um, <laughs> and then I, I got my sister to go and talk to him and I said like, to my sister, can you see what he thinks about it? And um, she said, uh, she said, Dad, what do you think about his book? And my dad said, I didn't expect to be the fucking hero of it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I, I think my dad knew what was happening, which is if I'd written a book 20 years earlier, my dad might not have come out of it quite as good. Um, but he'd grown up, I'd grown up. We come through all of that father and son stuff that happens when you're young. And he knew I loved him. And not like a week before he died, uh, I was talking to him in his bedroom one day and I said, are you and me okay? And he said, yeah, perfect. And he held out, held out his hand and we shook hands. And when he died, sorry, I'm going to cry, but when he died, I just felt this sense of joy that I told him everything I wanted to tell him. I'd, I'd made it really clear that I loved and respected him and, and he knew. And, and I think, wow, who, who gets to do that? Most of us, most of us never get the chance to do that with our parents, do we? To, no. to properly tell them why we love them and what we love about them, and and to get all of the baggage, all the negative stuff, and just to look each other in the eyes, shake hands, and say we're all right, aren't we? And and I would say to anybody listening to this, okay, I'm making myself cry here, and I think you're welling up. But <laughs> anybody listening to this, people, none of us are going to live forever, right? Like. We're not all going to write best-selling books about our dads. I know that's not typical, but if you have people around you, go and give them a cuddle and tell them, tell them that you love them or you respect their work or whatever. These things should be said, I think. That's the thing I've learned from that whole experience. Uh, don't bottle it up. Don't, don't have lots of regrets that you wish you told your dad or your mum why you loved them. Do, do it, because I, I think it's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. What should a we gift. stop crying now? A, <laughs> we'll, we'll try. <laughs> what a gift. My goodness. Wow. So when is your new book available here in the, in the oh, U.S.? So I'm pretty sure it comes out from HarperCollins um, on August the 3rd. Uh, it's called Pastoral Song. It should be available from all sort of good bookshops. And if you go in your local bookshop and they aren't selling it, tell them they should be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I order books from the little bookstore where my daughter went to college, and they've, they've had it on their list as available for like six months. So that's I think, exciting. I think, I think some of my American readers have had to wait a little bit longer than they wanted because it was like a year ago it came out in the UK. But yeah, yeah it's, it's going to get there eventually. And um, yeah, it's, I've had like to, to be lucky enough to have one best-selling book about your family or the things you love is insane. 
but to have two is completely mind-blowing. So that's what that's what's happened in the UK. People loved the first book and it sold a heap of copies. And then exactly the same things happened with the second one. And there's been so much love and warmth for both of the books. It's really touching. Like every day I get letters, every day I get emails, messages on social media from people. And I think I think in a way I got lucky. I was so proud and in love with my own family and our traditions that I think other people are reading it and they're they're really relating to their own families, where they came from and their relationship with their dad and their granddad and how it all changed, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And yeah, I think I've got lucky in a way. I've, t- I've tapped into things that matter to a whole heap full of people. You know, it strikes me as you were talking about the first book, that the second book is a similar conversation with the livelihood that you love. Yeah. And, and at times a tough conversation to have, I think. Um, yeah. I, yeah. So the, the, the genesis of the first book was, I was, I was like a proud, well, in the book, I say I'm a little, I was a proud little Spartan. I was prepared to fight anybody to defend my people. <laughs> and, and that's the way I grew up. I was like, who the hell are these environmentalists saying that we're trash? And who are these people saying we're damaging things? Like, screw you. I'm going to tell you why this is beautiful and why we're proud and what we do and how old it is and how it works. Um, and that was really where the first book came from. I, I, by the time I actually wrote it and it was published, I'd grown up somewhat. I could take the edges off that. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. The new book is, is, has come from a different place. It's come from the grown-up me saying, okay, let's, let's talk about this properly, like, like friends. Let's, let's talk about the truth of this. What really happened to the environment here? And what did we do in that? And are there some things that, are not good? Are there some things that my people did and everybody else around the world did as farmers that have done damage? And if we have, let's let's talk about that honestly. Let's look at that thing and work out what it was and where it came from. Because I think that's the way forward, right? If we're, if we're just going to do these stupid culture wars where I call, I call environmentalists assholes and they call me an asshole, and we are, what, what good does that do either group? That doesn't do any good, right? the best thing we need to do is to actually go for a walk around the farm with, with like a cup of tea or a can of beer, go and look at things and talk this thing through. So we understand each other. And then if there's damage, if there's things that aren't as good as they should be, and there is, that's, that's what I talk about in the book. Then, then how do we put it back together again? Because I don't, I don't want rural people to be pushed off their land or squeezed out or, I think those things are disastrous, actually. I, th- I think we need people that are rooted, that love their land, that know their land. So, and we're not going to push them out anyway, because those people know fine how to stick, stick in, put down roots, never move, fight back. So, so what, do we, what do we really need? We need those people to be better stewards of, of land all around the world, to look after soil better all around the world, to look after native habitats, whether it's prairie or savanna or whatever it might be. Um, and that, I think that requires us as farmers maybe to learn a, a whole bunch of things that maybe our dads and granddads didn't know. Yeah. And it may require us to change our farming in lots of directions. Um, but it doesn't mean we need to disappear. And it doesn't mean all of the things that we love are bad. I, th- I think there's, there's ways through this thing. There's ways to negotiate to the future. Um, and, and I believe that wholeheartedly. The book, the book is about my grandfather's farming and my dad's farming and then mine and then my children's. Um, but the book ultimately is a hopeful one. I, I think there's a future for people like us. Um, I think we just have to make that future. And we've got to be bold enough and wise enough and decent enough 
to be honest and to talk to everybody else about these things and to, to own the problems and then to, to be the people putting these places back together. I, I want to see rural communities like yours and mine be healthy, places where right. people can live and bring their children up and have really healthy, vibrant communities with work for people that they care about and mean something. And, and I don't want to be the environmental bad guy. I, I want to be a genuinely good steward of my land. I want to look after things properly and care for the land and the, the ecosystem I'm in. So, yeah. I, and, and, the, and the really nice thing is I get letters every day from farming families, like farmers who've read the book. And, and I, didn't know, I didn't know how it would go because I was kind of using up some credit from the first book, right? I've made every, everybody in the farming world likes me because I stuck up for us in the first book. <laughs> And then in the second book, I thought, okay, I'm going to push this right to the edge. I'm going to see how far I can push this with, with being brutally honest. And I get these amazing letters every day from people saying, you're right. We did do these things. We have done harm, haven't we? We, we have gone down roads that are not the way we should have gone. And we need to change it. And, and I love that. There's like grandparents buying their kids the book or the kids are buying the dad the book saying, dad, yeah. we're going to have a conversation on the farmhouse table about this because our soil's screwed or, or why are we keeping these animals that can't give birth naturally that need to be fed lots of grain or, or why have we got two million pounds worth of debt producing milk for, for a loss? Like what the hell's going on? What, what is this thing we've put ourselves into? So I, I'm still, I still, I hope, I hope it comes through. I still love farming. I love farming people. I want us, I want us to meet our challenges and I want us to be there. But I think to do that properly, we've got to be really grown up about it and big. One of the questions that really struck me in, in reading the second book, um, and I asked this as both a shepherd and a scientist, um, where does science fit in kind of this more traditional approach to farming in, in your perspective? That's, that's a good question. I'm obviously just a, like a, a farm boy that writes books about the things he loves now. but um, the biggest, most useful thing science has done for me is to, is to give me proper, proper answers about what, what was this place in the past. Like, I've, had some, I've got amazing ecologist friends now, and I'll say to them, okay, tell me what this would be if I wasn't here. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what was it long, long before I was here? Because I think that matters, right? That's what the birds, the insects, everything lived in. So I, science tells me what that was. And, and here... It was a patchwork of woodland and thorny scrub. I think you would call it savanna. It's sort of heavily wooded, but sort of savanna. And then there was these sort of, the, the, there was no longer any beavers here, but there were beaver sort of wetland meadows full of flowers and there were meadow clearings. And, and of course the herbivores are playing a vital role in that. They're, they're pushing back the, the woodland, they're, they're grazing the clearings, they're doing all the stuff with dung, etc. But so science gives me answers about what it was. And then science, I think science, science and farmers who are doing this stuff give me answers about how I can start to do some of that again. Mm-hmm. How can I manage a field like a woodland clearing or a beaver meadow? How might I recreate wetland in the worst bits of my farm? What kind of woodland is healthy woodland and what kind of woodland right. is just old dead trees? Right. So I still don't go to scientific conferences or read that many scientific papers. But secondhand, through the, my ecologist friends, I'm getting a whole heap of science. There's, there's clever, uh, and particularly on soil. Like, how do, I, how do I manage grazing to maximize photosynthesis, to grow the most biomass, 
to put the most carbon into my soil. Um, that stuff, like God bless my dad and my granddad and my, everybody in my family for generations, but they didn't know a damn thing about that. And neither did I until about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think what's happening is that the soil scientists are revolutionizing how we think about our role as farmers. And it's mind blowing. Like it was probably only about six years ago that my friend Caroline, who's a sort of an ecological consultant, explained to me how grass effectively works, right? There's like this simple moment where in about a minute, she tells me how grass most effectively photosynthesizes because you let it have more leaves because it pumps root exudates down. And I listen to this thing for a couple of minutes and I'm, I feel like I'm about six years old. Like, how do I not know that? How could people be farmers for 600 plus years and not know something so simple? So, so some of this is coming out of the past. I know that my grandfather knew some pretty clever management tricks. He didn't know why they worked, but he knew how, some of the tricks about how to manage this landscape. So I think maybe 60, 70% of it is what we did before fossil fuels and the, before the post-war period. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe 30, 40% of it is coming from science. It's saying, hang on a minute, boys and girls, you don't actually know what you're doing here. You need, you need to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> You need to listen to how we might manage a field differently, how we might build build back some of the elements that are needed in the ecosystem. And here, I'm learning all the time. I think that's the fun bit about this. Once you start learning from science, you start learning from ecologists, you're sort of empowered. Instead of feeling like the bad guy or some kind of loser who's a bit thick, you're empowered to start thinking how you could mend it. So a good example of that is I used to think we needed native habitats I didn't understand that we needed the, the appropriate processes. So, for example, um, a field of, field of native grassland is a habitat, but a rotational, properly timed rotational grazing of it is the process that makes it work. Mm -hmm. um, a woodland or thorny scrub is the habitat, but again, there's often herbivores in that or there's wild boar or pigs in that to make it have the natural processes to be as diverse as it really should be. So. Once you know that, you can start putting it back together. You can go, oh, hang on a minute. I'll put the pigs in the woods. Might only be a little few pigs, and it will maybe only be for bacon for the house, but I can do that. Or, or maybe I need loads of willow in my wetland areas to recreate what beavers would have done. And maybe in the future, a beaver will come back. They're reintroducing them all over the UK at the moment. But until that day, I can be the, I can be the phony beaver. I can create some of that habitat, some of those processes. And... And I don't, I don't care if that's a bit like gardening. Like some people, uh, some people love the idea of wild as if we can somehow step out of things. But what, what I'm increasingly learning, the more I learn about ecology, when we step out of things in the UK, there, is, there aren't giant herds of bison or bog elk or saber-toothed tigers that step in. There's a whole heap of things that used to make it work that aren't even here anymore. So I think... I think the best option, the most likely option that would really work well, maybe me, me replicating some of the things those animals that are no longer here did. Yeah. And am I embarrassed about that? Not even a little bit. I think we're, we're, the, we're the ecosystem engineers. We have been for a very long time. And I just think we need to be enlightened ecosystem engineers, not regressive ones. Wow, this got heavy, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that strikes me, James, is that that there's a flip side to that conversation too, that, that the art of farming well can inform the science. Yeah. That. I, I, sorry. Yeah. Just to jump in. Sorry. To yeah. No, no. 
I'm excited by that idea. You're exactly right. So what I'm also learning is that the science tends to come, this is not an insult to science, but it tends to come about quite siloed things. Exactly. Uh, uh, it tends to be about small bits of the overall picture. Um, and what I'm finding is that sometimes a generalist, which is what a farmer is, right? Um, a well-informed generalist sometimes understands the whole better than the scientists who are experts on the individual little bits. Yep. And that's been really cool. So what, what's ended up happening on our farm is we've now got this dialogue going in which the scientists come and tell me about the specifics of soil or photosynthesis or wetlands. But they're also, and I realized a few years ago this was happening, they're scribbling notes down like crazy because they don't know, they don't know the stuff I'm seeing. So like an example of this, we, we have this bird called a gray heron, and, and we all think it's a wetland and river bird, right? It's not a field bird, but when I started doing very long recovery grazing, copying Greg Judy, so I've got these huge covers like of, of wild pastures full of flowers and things, and then I'm mob grazing them with a big flock of sheep and lambs, uh, the herons suddenly appear, and all summer long, there's six herons in the field following my ewes and lambs. And... I was telling the ornithologists about this. I was saying, there's this weird things happening. And I realized what it was. It was that there were so many little frogs and toads and lizards and spiders and worms in the pastures when I managed them like nature used to, that the heron, somewhere in the heron's genetic memory, it knows exactly how to play this game. And, uh, and this is happening in all of the sort of rewilding or nature recovery projects on farms in the UK. We're suddenly learning that what we thought we knew about once wild species is not the full picture. They're, they're often living in places because there's nowhere else left. Yeah. And, and when you put these things back together, and all right, I'm doing it in a slightly amateurish farmer way, when you put these things back together, you're like, whoa, actually a heron's a, heron's a cattle and sheep bird. It, it wants to follow pastures. It's doing what an egret would do in a lot, or a cowbird would do in another system. Um, and and like we, we have these little birds, well, I think you have the same thing. Uh, we have swallows yeah uh, like, yeah and swallows are really struggling all over the uk and i i built the barn that i'm sitting in at the moment this is like my office in the end of the barn and we had one pair of swallows on the farm and then we in the last five or six years when we've changed all of the grazing to again have way more sward we've now got clouds of insects there's over 100 swallows in the barn some days it's like it's insane those swallows have been have been shuffled out of our landscape because we didn't give them anymore what they needed. And, yeah. and then I mean, the other thing that needs to be said about this is I'm, I'm not a saint, right? I'm a farmer. I've got to pay my bills. So there's, there's an, absolutely another side to this thing, which is I think then farmers like you or I that might care about these things have to go back to the politicians. We have to go back to the public and in the most articulate way we can say, hang on a minute, you don't just need us to produce food. You need us to look after landscapes, look after swallows, insects, herons. You need the whole thing. And, and sometimes I can't do that as cheap as some guy in Indiana with a gigantic machine or in Western Australia. Like, no offense to those people. They're doing the best they can in the systems they're in. Um, that's where it gets interesting. And that's, and that's probably why I write my books. I, wanna, I want as many people as possible to care about farming, to think about it. And to start realizing that when they buy something in the supermarket or in a restaurant, that what happens in the field to produce that, it's their business. It's, yeah. it's, it, they're, they're partly culpable, they're partly responsible for it. And we have these giant food corporations that don't care about you, they don't care about me, they don't care about the herons, they don't care about the swallows, they don't care about any of that stuff. 
They just think we're we're effectively factories in a, in the countryside, and it's. And I was sort of amazed when I started thinking this stuff through, like 10, 15 years ago. You start off in a field thinking about little stuff, and suddenly you realise this is about everything. Um, this is about the big stuff. It's about economics. It's about politics. It's about how we feed the poorest people in our society. And before I get off this hobby horse, I, I was reading this crazy thing the other day. It doesn't matter who wins your elections, right? They, but they give so much money to both political parties. Yeah. They walk into the room with a smile on their face, if it's Trump or if it's Biden, and they, they more or less nominate their own secretary of agriculture. How, how corrupt is that? They... They, they bought you. They bought the entire system. They're gaming everybody. It's incredible. Sorry. It is incredible. It is incredible. And it's gone on most of my adult life here. It's just something that you don't, you don't realize until the curtains pulled back on it. And, that, and, that it's and you need, happening. I think you need somebody not naive, angry, and idiotic like me to stir things up every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So you talk about, this is kind of along the same lines, but you talk in the new book about kind of the unintended consequences of miracle fixes to all of our problems. And one of the the interesting discussions here, I don't know if it's happening there, has been this whole discussion of climate change and livestock production and um, efficiency in livestock production. And there's a, a school of thought here that says that, gosh, the faster we can finish meat animals, um, the more efficient we are in, in finishing animals for meat, the better. And there's this other school of thought of which I'm a proponent that, you know, there's this complex relationship. Ruminant animals can convert stuff that grows on its own, if we take care of it, into fiber and muscle and milk. And maybe there's a different measure of efficiency we need to be thinking about when it comes to these questions. But I'm, I'm curious as to your perspective on that whole either or approach so, to so in my 20s i was obsessed with economics and i thought I, I was reading people like milton friedman or friedrich hayek and i was like okay these guys know how it works it's brutal but this is how it works it's supply and demand it's what people want just give them what they want adapt move on and don't get me wrong i was a, I was a smart kid i was a I, I knew i could hustle i knew i'd be fine in that world but as the years passed i'm i'm looking at this going hang on a minute nobody's thinking this through properly like this whole idea that efficiency is always better, this just isn't thought through properly. And, and it hit me some years ago um, that you can't judge efficiency out of context. Yeah. And like the, the best example I can give you is if I say to you, if we get a room full of parents in a room and say, look, I can make the school bus 20% more efficient. I'm going to take all the seats out. That'll make it lighter. I'm going to get this guy who used to be a racing driver who's got a drink problem, but don't worry about it. He's going to get the kids to school 20% quicker. No one's voting for that because everybody knows that context is absolutely vital. You don't want the drunk ex-racing driver to kill the kids on the way to school. That, that's, pretty much, that's pretty much what we did to fields. We said the only thing that matters is that you produce more and more, cheaper and cheaper. Nothing else matters. Bullshit, nothing else matters. Uh, the river that runs past the field matters. The soil beneath the field matters. The insects that once lived on the field matters. The birds around the field matter. The person that works in the field matters. Um, whether the food, food's as nutrient-dense matters. Um, the kind of community as a whole we create if we go down that route, all of those things matter. And 
They don't want us to talk about this. They want you. To, they want us to go to supermarkets, pick stuff up wrapped in plastic, do, be good little boys and girls, go and work in Walmart, earn minimum wage while they make the real money. They have all the power. They trash the world. No, this is this is disastrous. And they they don't want to make meat greener. They want to get rid of meat so that they can make everything in the factory. Like, why bother with the the peasants at all? Yeah. Like, uh, like just make this stuff. That's what Bill Gates, all those people want. They want to make industrial gunk in factories, own the whole thing. You can trade that. You can make a huge amount of money out of that. They do not care about any of us. So um, you're absolutely right. When we're talking about cattle, what we need is not more efficient cattle, ignoring all the context. What we need is a system which mimics natural ecosystems in appropriate places, which uh, is looked at as a system. So. Uh, yes, a cow that lives longer might have more emissions, but is it on healthy soil and healthy sward and in a system that's trapping lots of greenhouse gases? That's that's the important thing. And so I think we've got to, much as I like scientists, much as I like economists, <laughs> in, a sense, in a sense, we need to put them back in their box a little bit and go, thank you for the insights that were useful, but we're not. you're not in charge of this game. We need to listen to ecologists and think about sustainability. We need to think about these things holistically. Sorry, I'm 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 on my hobby horse now. <laughs> that's that's exactly why I wanted to wanted to talk to you. <laughs> so, context is another way of saying community. I think, right? Yeah. And and I'm curious. You're you're probably um, the best known shepherd in all of the Twitterverse. I would suspect. Um, is community strictly a geographic construct or can community be built virtually as well? And, and is social media a positive or a negative force in building that kind of community? Um, okay, so, so, so young me thinks community is a geographical construct. You're, you're either from this valley, you do this stuff or you don't. And, I, and young me doesn't care about anything else. I'm yeah. like tunnel vision. Um, Old me realizes that that's that that's wrong, right? Um, old me realizes that we're dead. We're all dead. Everybody that cares about the good stuff is dead in the water, beat totally beat, unless you can affect public opinion, unless you can persuade enormous amounts of people who vote and eat and shop to care about the things that matter. And and I was brought up in a family where communicating with the wider world was, um, was something that we were deeply suspicious of. You, you got your work done, you kept people out, you, did, you, you worried about them coming into your farm, your life, anything like that. Um, and I now realize that that's, I now think that's completely wrong, which is why I did stick my neck out and go into things like social media. Um, I think there's different layers to community. So yes, in one sense, I still belong to the community of this valley and we do specific things and we have a sense of belonging. But I also belong to a community where you and I can talk on here and I can talk to like 150,000 people on social media or millions of people sometimes if, if something goes viral. And, and that community can get pretty big. And, and I think that's quite good fun as well. Um, so like the, I don't think I have the power to, to change the world just like I might want to. But I, I do have the power to make it uncomfortable sometimes for, for British politicians or for people talking about these things and arguing in the wrong way, I could I sometimes step into those arguments or those debates and and I'll put our point of view across. I'll say, no, you're not thinking this through properly. You ha you ha why are you not talking about these other things? And uh, 
And sometimes I don't want to do that. Sometimes social media is a pain in the ass and you should be playing with your kids or looking after your sheep. And, and that's true. And sometimes I wish it wasn't me. Sometimes I wish like I had a brother that was doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not sure I want to do it forever, but, but right now I'm in, I'm in fighting mood. Like if the politicians in my country want to screw everything that I care about, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to either nicely persuade them and, and educate them and hold their hands while they think about it better. Or if they're determined to fight people like me, I'm going to give them a bloody nose today, tomorrow, every day. Um, and I don't care. I'm still a proud little Spartan, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to <laughs> fight for a bit. I'm willing to fight for the bigger stuff, you know, like, and I know you are as well. That's presumably why you do this podcast and why, why you care about the things you care about. Absolutely. Absolutely. My last question for you is, is, uh, and you can, you can tell me to go to hell with this question, but how in the world do you find time to write on top of all the other things you do? Um, with great difficulty. So some people think I'm like Merlin the wizard. I can magically do things everybody else can't do, but that's not true. Um, so when I am writing, I'm getting away with it because I've got an amazing wife called Helen who's propping me up or I've got neighbors and friends who are helping me more than they normally would um, so that I can be the guy at the computer writing a thousand words or whatever it might be. Um, uh, I tend to flip in and out of my writing life. So I, uh, I can go months and months where I'm just a farmer and I'm you know, working my ass off doing normal things. And then, and this is starting right now because I'm writing my next book at the moment. Then there comes a point where I have to make the farm as simple as possible get a little bit of help, rely on the people around me, my kids and my wife, and know that I'm going to have to, whatever's happening, I'm going to have to be the guy that locks myself in an office for five hours or whatever to get the next bit done and the next bit. When I wrote my first book, I wrote a lot of it through the night after I'd finished work and after my kids had gone to bed. I'm finding as I get older, I can't do that <laughs> the same way. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's forcing me to make tough choices. And like I said, right at the start of this conversation, I may have to keep making the farm a little bit simpler. I may, and this still pains me, I may have to make the farming a little bit smaller because that isn't what farm boys are meant to do. Um, And again, you've got to make choices. So there's, the truth is I love the life I'm from. That should be really obvious, the way I talk and the way I write. Um, But I also love the writing. I've always always loved that. I think it's it's an absolute privilege to be able to write something and put it on a page and somebody put it in a book and other people read it. Um, I love it when I read great books from like a hundred years ago, you read like Tolstoy or something and you think, wow, Tolstoy never dies, right? He's, he's on the page. You, you and I can read him. That's a kind of awesome thing. And, and part of me loves that and, and wants to do everything I can to write the best possible stuff I can in the next 10, 15 years, just to get anywhere, anywhere on the shelf near to some of those heroes. <laughs> <laughs> Is your farm part of your body of work? Um, yeah, I, th- I think so. I th- I, yeah, I think it is. Like uh, one of my friends asked me, a good farming friend asked me a long time ago, he said, are you a farmer that writes or a writer that farms? And my answer to him then was, I'm a farmer that writes. That was, that was the original answer. And I think what I've realized is uh, we've changed the farm an enormous amount. It, it is a large part of my work, but I also understand it as being not really about me. It, it's not very long ago that it was my father's work and it won't be very long until it's my children's work or somebody else's. 
So I feel sort of personally insignificant, even though I can mm-hmm. make a bunch of good changes while I'm here. I'm a very small link in a very big chain. And it doesn't feel like in the long run of history, I'll be that important to the farm. It, it'll go on, it'll find a future. So my answer is starting to change. I think, I think my ego is coming into play. I think I'm a writer that farms. <laughs> they, and that's okay. I think as my children, my, my eldest two daughters are 15 and 13. The 13 year old's really into the farm. I can see that maybe like 10 years time, one of my kids will be able to take a lot of responsibility on the farm. And I think maybe the way that I get out of the way and let them have a future here and let them have the reins is that maybe I say, do you know what? I did as well as I could. Now it's your turn. And I'll go and do my other hustle, which I happen to love. Which is <laughs> Well, I, I think in time, I may be less of a farmer and more of a writer, but we'll see. Well, I'm anxious for, for the third book. And, and James, I really appreciate you taking time today. This, is, this has just been outstanding. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to somebody uh, like-minded. And then, yeah, some of my best wishes to all the farming people in America that's listening. I've, um, I was, in some ways, I've been quite critical about American farming in the book, but I, I also said in the afterward to the book, I've met nothing but lovely people every time I've come to America, good, hardworking people. And I've, I've also tried to be fair about why they got into that place, like in the same way that my dad and my granddad did. So it, it, isn't, it isn't a slight on them. Um, I respect those people. And I actually have a lot of faith in their ability on your side of the water to make things better and change things. I think they will. There's so many good people. There's so much good thinking happening. We can do it. We can absolutely do this. Well, and and pastoral song is a start of that conversation. So thank you for, for writing book number two. So it's it's outstanding. And I hope, I hope, uh, hope it does as well in this country as it did in England. It's it's Uh, thank you. Thank you for your help and your support. Take care. Thanks, James. Bye-bye. Bye. And this is Sheep Stuff You Should Know with Dan Macon up in Auburn, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.